Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Jason Kander became a sensation in Democratic politics in 2016, a young challenger to Senator Roy Blunt in Missouri. He very nearly pulled off the upset of the year, uh, but for Donald Trump pulling off a bigger upset of the year and carrying his state by 19 points, Kander lost by less than three He also got a lot of attention for an ad in which he, a veteran of the war in Afghanistan, assembled a weapon blindfolded while he talked about the need for background checks. Jason Kander is a fellow at the Institute of Politics uh, this fall, and we sat down in the wake of the massacre in Las Vegas to talk about guns uh, as well as his life, career, and uh, future. Jason Kander, it's good to see you. You too. Uh, Normally, I'd start out a conversation uh, like this from the beginning of your story, but something happened this week that requires me to jump ahead a little, and that is this horrific uh, event in Las Vegas in which which 58 people lost their lives and over 500 wounded in what was essentially an ambush. You came to national attention last year as a candidate for the United States Senate, and particularly because of one commercial, Mm -hmm. and that was a commercial of you as a a veteran, blindfolded, uh, assembling a weapon, uh, and uh, talking about the gun issue Mm -hmm. and background checks. Mm -hmm. Um, Talk a little bit about that. Why did you do that ad? And... uh, and 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 what were you trying to communicate? Sure. So I have an F rating from the NRA, and uh, the other side was definitely uh, making sure everyone knew that. They were running lots of ads about it, millions of dollars in TV ads. And then on top of that, uh, Wayne LaPierre, president of the NRA, you know, they, they hated me so much that he actually personally came to Missouri to campaign against me. And so when all that happened, lots of folks reached out to the campaign, and they they had suggestions about what they thought I should do. And the most common suggestion, which this won't surprise you, was that I make one of those ads where I shoot like a really big gun and talk about how much I love hunting and basically pretend to be a Republican. Uh, but I, you know... I've do been, you hunt? I haven't been hunting since I was a kid. And, uh, and I didn't get into politics to play a character on TV. And so... And also, like, I've always believed that, you know, you can't, you can't act your way through this. Like, I'm not an actor... You know, people would see through it. So I, I've just always led with what I truly believe. So that ad was me saying I'm right about background checks and the NRA is wrong, and I know what the heck I'm talking about. And and so that that's the whole idea behind the ad, right? It's like I, I could have tried to make an ad where I convince everybody, no, 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 really, um, I'm, you know, I should have an A rating or whatever. But it's not 
believable. It's also not, I didn't get into office to say stuff I don't, or I didn't get into politics to say stuff I don't believe. So I've always believed like you make your argument and people respect that. Now, you presumably believed that uh, being a veteran uh, gave you certain standing to talk about these issues because you were trained in handling weapons. You obviously seen uh, weapons being used for things other than hunting. Right. It, it definitely, uh, I would say, I would put it this way. So much of my view on, on things, including this issue is informed by my experience as is true for anybody. Right. But for me, and that's why in the ad I say, you know, in the army, I learned to use and respect my rifle. Um, because you know, it's a tool. And, and so the ad was getting across, um, that I know, I mean, again, it was just, I know what I'm talking about. I've always believed that one of the most important things you can do when you're making your argument politically is I refer to it as it's like showing your math, you know, someone may not agree with your conclusion, but they need to know how you got there. And, and if you're telling them how you got there and they can understand how you got there, then at the end of it, they may not, they may not come out the same way on the issue. But they're going, oh, I see how we got there. And then they, they, there's more credibility and respect for that. And I feel like that moves your argument forward. This issue is now front and center again because of what happened mm-hmm. in, uh, in Las Vegas. What, what was your reaction when you, when you saw the news? Well, I woke up, um, uh, I, I woke up and, you know, to get my son ready for school and my wife um, was on her phone and she, she said like a lot of people just got killed in Vegas. And of course, and I think, you know, so my reaction was unfortunately, uh, familiar. I mean, that, I think that's what bothers me the most about it. Right? I agree with you. I mean, it's almost as if we're numb to these things because they come so frequently, which I think is one of the most dangerous parts of this is, is just the, the idea that we can allow this to become part uh, of American life. But the thing about that is, is that I feel like a lot of the, a lot of the conversation right now around it, like when I look on social media and hear people talk about it, they'll say, well, I guess we're just okay with this now. Or I guess, you know, and people will say, well, this, you know, Newtown happened and then we didn't do anything. But the thing is the country is, was ready to do something then. And the country is ready to do something now. But we, the way we draw districts in this country, the way gerrymandering works and the fact that primaries are more important in determining who gets elected than general elections so often, that's the thing that is th- at the heart of why we're not doing anything on the issue. It's not that the American people don't have an urgency to do something. It's that, you know, what's the old Upton Sinclair line? Uh, it's very difficult to get a man to understand something he's paid not to understand. I mean, that's what I think is happening with this Republican Congress. And I, and I think it's important for us to recognize that the American people are ready to take action on this. And the Congress is just not listening because in too many districts, they're incentivized not to listen. Specifically on this incident in Las Vegas, I mean, this guy Jerry rigged his semi-automatic weapons to essentially make them mm-hmm. automatic weapons. I mean, these are weapons of war. Mm-hmm. They're not yeah. weapons for sport. They're weapons of war meant to inflict as many casualties and, and kill as many people as possible in the shortest amount of time. I mean... <laughs> You know, I've seen some stuff where people have mashed together the videos where folks are talking about they're doing what they always do after something like this. People start like the Republicans start talking about mental mental health. Very important part of the conversation. But I'm sorry, whether or not someone who's mentally ill can get a gun is also an important part of that conversation. And I've even seen where I've turned on cable news where people are talking about security at hotels and whether it should be addressed. I mean, that's incredible. We're going to we're going to talk about 
the fact that he could get 20 or whatever guns up in the hotel and say, must be an issue with the hotel. Like the, the desperation at which people will go to, to avoid talking about guns in the wake of this. And then they'll say, well, this is not the time. There's like a mass shooting every other day in this country right now. So when is the time going to be? And what it all comes down to is money. I mean, that's the other thing people don't talk about here is that, uh, the NRA, like when, when you're running for office and you get the questionnaire, you've, I would imagine have seen it. You get the questionnaire from the NRA. It's not uh, about questions about gun rights and people to own guns. It's mostly questions about selling guns. It's about the right of federally licensed gun manufacturers to do X. So the reason that they don't want background checks, the reason that they don't want, you know, the reason that they want silencers to be, I mean, the silencers thing is the perfect example, right? Because we had a really sophisticated technology for hearing protection in the army. It was called earplugs, you know, and so they're running around saying this is about hearing protection. No, it's if they can sell silencers, they make more money and, and background checks might cause a few fewer people to buy guns and then they make less money. That's what this is. It's, it's, they just want to sell as many guns as possible. And now, that's the NRA leadership I'm talking about, not the average member. Now, in this case, uh, background checks may not have – I mean, this guy bought these guns not at gun shows, not online, but he mm-hmm. bought them through mm-hmm. gun dealers. And he went through background checks, and mm-hmm. he came up clean. Mm-hmm. Uh, so background checks wouldn't necessarily right. have prevented this. Right. Uh Maybe. I mean, that's, that, it seems to be the case, right? But who knows? I mean, and also, like, there's so many different... When you look at a, a guy who's got, what, 40 weapons, he unleashes them in this way. There's no way in the world, in my mind, that you can look at this and say, well, clearly nothing... And I know that's not what you're saying, but clearly nothing could have been done, right? I mean... Well, there are other things that could yeah. be done. My question, I guess, is uh, what? why are these particular weapons available and why are the devices that allow them to be adapted and become fully automatic available? Now, you know... Democrats uh, in Congress led back in 94 on an assault weapons mm-hmm. ban or in 93. And a lot of uh, that scarred a lot of people politically because there was a sense, and I think Bill Clinton may have spoken to this, that that cost some people their seats. Uh, do you think these weapons should be available? No, I, I think that what I carried in Afghanistan, it is not necessary for somebody to be carrying around here. I mean, you know, I. It's just they're not for defense. You can't. You don't go hunting with an AR-15, um, and you don't defend your house with it. Uh, not if you're doing it in a way that's in any way responsible toward the other people who live in your house. Uh, so, I, I think it's pretty. It's pretty clear. And and you know you get right at it. Like when you say people are concerned that there are some people who lost their seats over it. I think at the heart of this right now, it's not even about Democrat and Republican right now. It's about Republicans who know that these weapons don't belong in the hands of, of folks just walking around in the street, but are worried that they're going to lose a primary because of it, because of the outsized influence of the NRA in Republican primaries and because of the outsized importance of Republican primaries in, in determining who actually is in the House of Representatives, for instance. So what it really comes down to is folks got to have the courage – or not even courage – People have to prioritize saving lives over keeping their jobs. Like, it's that simple. It's, it's very much the same thing as uh, the healthcare debate, right? Like, at the end of the day, there are a whole bunch of people in Congress who, are, who think that 
there is a higher good in retaining their current employment than there is in not having more people die. Do you, uh, in your own state, you obviously were kind of flamboyant in challenging the gun lobby with that ad. Uh, what what price of any do you think you paid? Did you lose votes that you would have gotten if uh, if you hadn't taken the position you, you had? And we should point out that you didn't get quite enough to win. Sure. Well, I actually outperformed every Democrat on the ballot uh, in Missouri. Yeah, last you did year. well. I'm not. I'm no, not no, denigrating but, your no, effort. Worry, dear, I, I wasn't. That it sounded like bragging. That was the. That was the beginning of a sentence that ends, including one who was endorsed by the NRA. Um, you know, the the my good friend uh, Chris Custer, the Democratic candidate for governor, uh, was also endorsed by the NRA. So, in terms of the question of had I had it, see, I don't think it is about which position you hold. I think what voters are just looking for is they're passion is persuasive and and it's important that you are passionate and articulating what you believe and uh and i think like when people saw me make the argument look i think the majority of people agree with me on background checks anyway but the ones who didn't were like "Hmm, that guy's willing to tell me what he believes and i see how he got there and and that's really important to voters when you travel around missouri Mm -hmm. what arguments do you hear because it isn't just about sportsmen, right? It's right. not there. Are, there, there is an element uh, of people who are opposed to these regulations because they believe that that it is their right to be armed against, for example, an overweening government. That they're worried about uh, about surrendering all their weapons. That this is sort of a, a, a step toward, you know. To authoritarian leadership. Uh, uh. You hear that occasionally, but to be honest, like if somebody if somebody says something like that, I I generally know pretty quick. Like it's a pretty long road between me and convincing that person, right? But the majority of folks, and I think the folks who the attack ads on this issue, you know, from the right, the the ones they're trying to get is a different set of people, and and I think it is. Well, let me, let me back up and explain it this way. I, I have folks all the time, like on our side of the aisle or our side of this issue, say to me, how is it possible that folks who are living in poverty in a rural area, for instance, how is it possible that they'll put guns as their, as their top issue? And what I always explain is, because I kind of had that question at first too, but I've been around my state a lot for several years. And what I've found is often what it is really is that it's not that it's their top issue. It's, it's, it's like this. These folks look at it and they say, okay, I get that increasing wages would be good for me and for my family. I get that if you can achieve what you say you want to achieve on college affordability, that'd be good, or healthcare, that'd be good. But they've also come to the conclusion that that's not going to happen. You know, and that's that's not just about Democrats. That's about a, a real loss of faith the in the system, political yeah. process, right? And so then some of these folks, what they'll do is they'll say to themselves, you know, um, I go hunting with my grandson uh, with my son, I went hunting with my dad, with my grandfather. It's a tradition in my family, and it's kind of it's cultural. And, right. and and they say, and they're saying, and and I don't think you're going to get this other stuff done. So just don't mess with this thing that is important to mm-hmm. me. And when you look at it that way, you can going back to showing the math. I don't agree with the conclusion, but I see the math. Yeah, I totally. I totally believe. I think that is the preponderance mm-hmm. of people who are on that side of the issue. Is this sense of, you know, the sense that perhaps there's the, a, a disdain for 
their culture exactly. of staying for 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 the you know what is a a tradition mm-hmm. uh, and it's also I mean no go ahead. it's also so those attack ads I think are not just about saying um, that not just about playing on the fact that that folks uh, don't believe you'll get things done and this other stuff it's also sort of saying this guy wouldn't fit in or this guy wouldn't fit mm-hmm. in in your town right. and so. You know, going back to the ad that we did, that's sort of me saying like it's not just me saying here's what I believe and I know what I'm talking about. It's also saying, and we would get along fine. Well, and the yeah. fact that you uh, served and that you were a veteran, sure. which is true in a lot of these rural areas, is a, mm-hmm. a a higher preponderance of people who do serve, which is mm-hmm. a different issue. Which is why don't more people uh, mm-hmm. serve and why yeah. uh, you know why don't we encourage uh, that national service? military service yeah. and so on. But that was a validator for a lot of those voters. It is, but I, th- I also think, so I don't think it's just about having served in the military that's a validator for those voters. I think for all voters, what folks are looking for right now is evidence, and this is with everybody running, evidence of everyday courage, evidence of this person has been through something in their life that is more difficult than the campaign they're in right now. And, theref- and therefore, by virtue of that, if they get the job, uh, the possibility of losing the job won't be a prospect of the worst thing that could ever happen to them. And therefore, they'll go out and do the job. So, And I don't think you have to be a veteran for that. I think, I think there are a whole lot of backgrounds and professions and life experiences that people look at mm-hmm. and say, oh, this person seems like they've done something tougher than this. That, I, I, I believe that's true. Um, but in terms of breaking down these cultural divides, mm-hmm. military service is helpful well, in that regard. It certainly has been for me. I mean, it's like, for me... I recognize that uh, the fact that I feel that I can relate to a lot of different folks from a lot of different places who have different experiences than me, I think is very much grounded in the fact that, you know, as an officer in the army, folks come to you uh, with all sorts of experiences and, and these are your soldiers and you're, you're responsible for them. And they're your family for that period of time. And you are very deeply in their life. Like they need to come to you with all sorts of stuff and you need to be able to go to them with all sorts of stuff. And, and you really start to recognize how we're not really that far apart from one another. And even if somebody just has a completely different origin than you have, you really become much more, for me anyway, it's how I just got to know a lot of people and feel like when I meet folks, I don't, I don't, I don't feel like I meet a lot of strangers because of that. So let me get back to the beginning sure. and how a, a Jewish kid from Overland Park, Kansas, <laughs> gets to where you are uh, right now. Your, your parents were juvenile pro- probation officers, mm-hmm, yeah, and, uh, and your dad worked as a police officer, mm-hmm. and your, but your uncle <laughs> was a Broadway composer who composed uh, the music for Cabaret and Chicago. Mm-hmm. So how did this all work out? Well, I mean, you'd think I had some musical ability. I can't even hum, really, to a beat. Um, but, yeah, so um, my great-uncle John, uh, my grandfather's brother, uh, who he and I are really close. He's still, he's still writing. Still, he's still working um, in New York. And, you know, I just went to one of his, one of his shows a couple months ago. Um, yeah. So Is he, he also from Kansas? He's from Kansas City. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, um, from so, Missouri, yeah. From yeah, Kansas so City. Like, my whole family is uh, – uh, from the Casey Mo, and then my folks worked over on the Kansas side, so I grew up over there. Um, but yeah, uh, I just grew up in a house where it was really public service oriented in the sense that um, my parents 
like my, we refer to them as my unofficial foster brothers. These are the guys who my folks took in, uh, cause you know, their families were in difficult times, that kind of thing. And so like, I grew up with, uh, these guys as my brothers. So it was great for me, right? Like I would go to life was like sports and school. And then every night was a sleepover with my best friends. And, but it was, it was a real lesson because my folks didn't like sit down with my younger brother and I and have like a conversation around the dining room table. Like we're thinking of taking these boys in. They just put another spot at the at the dinner table and rolled out another bed. And, uh, and they just, they just demonstrated to us that you, you do the right thing, even when it's not the easy thing, you, it's the right thing. So you do it. Mm-hmm. But uh, just getting back to your uh, to to the composer for sure, a second, yeah, how did he end mm-hmm. up making this journey oh. from Kansas City to Broadway? Uh, so I probably will screw up some of the story, but no one will yeah. know but him. <laughs> no, I, there's been a fair amount written about this. <laughs> um, but you know, uh, John went out to New York um, a long time ago. I mean, and and just and I think he started as a rehearsal pianist, and then and he just. He's got an incredible gift. I mean, he and I are really close. I talk to him all the time. He he always says, uh, when we're talking about politics, which we talk about often, he will always marvel and say, oh, my gosh, it's all theater. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and he doesn't mean that, like, in a good way. Yes, <laughs> and, he's and, not composing music for it. Huh? Right, but he's, yeah. man, his gift, it's incredible to sit with him. I, I've sat with him where you'll be at dinner and someone will pick up the glasses and they'll clink together and you don't even think about it. And John's like, Oh, he loved the the sound like got him or he memorizes phone numbers by the tones. Hmm. I mean, so he's just got, I mean, he, it's just an absolutely incredible gift. He's also the kindest and most generous person. Like he will sit there and he will just ask you, all he wants to know is you about you, no matter who he's talking to. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with Jason Kander. So you were a baseball fanatic <laughs> who wasn't big enough to play baseball. I was this size in the eighth grade. So uh-huh. I, I really thought I was... And I Headed I for something big. Huh? I really did, yeah. Yeah. That was disappointing. But it, tur- <laughs> but it turns out that you had the body of a, of a debater. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, never had it put that way, but <laughs> thanks. <laughs> and you uh, and and you joined the debate team, and you mm-hmm. were good at it. I was, I was, I was, I was pretty good at talking. One of your uh, one of your teachers said, uh, if you get him in front of an audience, it's just like a light went off. <laughs> so, what is it about that that appealed to you? Uh, you know, at the time, it was. I mean, I genuinely was so naive. I really thought like I was going to play center field for the Kansas City Royals. And uh, and then at first I was like, oh, this is kind of fun. I'm good at this. And I guess I just felt like I can remember feeling like I remember that I'd be in, a, in, in debate and the other I'd look over at like the other team, the other kids. And and I noticed they were all looking down at their at their papers and they were all reading what they were going to say or writing it out. And I noticed about a year into it that I never did that. I always stared right at the judges. And that's kind of when I realized, like, oh, I do this differently than other people. And so to me, it wasn't like that I – I, I recognized it wasn't that I was this great order or whatever. It was that um, I think I just – my parents sort of – the way they raised me, I, I, was, I was able to understand where people were coming from. And, and therefore, I was able to kind of um, not – change what it is what my argument was but but know how to present it in a way 
that people could receive it. You know, you said earlier that uh, in, in relation to the ad that you know uh, you're not a you're not an actor, and mm-hmm. people will uh, will sense that and so on. But there is a performance le- element to politics mm-hmm. that you obviously uh, felt uh, came to early in that in that as a in that debate uh, in that debate class. Yeah, and I think what I learned and what I still use is that the performance element of it is if you can be the same person you are when you're talking to one person as when you're talking to – and this is different depending on the venue. But for the most part, like I feel like some people give speeches and some people give talks. I give speeches sometimes. Mostly I give talks. Mm -hmm. And and I feel like that is a different thing. And and the difference for me is like – you kind of get the same thing, whether you're, it's just me and you or whether it's me and you and uh, a thousand other people. And, and the performance aspect of that is recognizing that the only way that I am persuasive and the only way that I get across to people is if it's just me. Uh, and, and so and I, the, way I, the way I usually talk about this, like when I talk to, uh, to young people I, who are thinking about politics, I always explain um, that they can't act. You know, I always say, like, maybe you're an actor, maybe you're a great actor, whatever. Go be an actor. But Americans see a lot of acting, good acting. Like, they see it on on TV. They see it in the movies. And so when they see bad acting, it doesn't look like bad acting. It looks weird. And it's creepy. And it makes people uncomfortable. And so I just don't do that because I'm not good at it. And and so I think that's what I've learned is in, in, in my line of work, performing. It's just you have to be authentically yourself. You know, I, I, I heard a story years ago from Mike Deaver. He's now deceased, who was Ronald Reagan's political guy. He was mm-hmm. communications guy. He was, sort of did for Reagan what I did for President Obama. Mm-hmm. But he told me that uh, uh, he was plotting out a day once because a reporter, I think it was Tom Brokaw actually, was coming to see Reagan at the governor's mansion, and they plotted out a whole day's worth of activities. And, they, and he said, at noon, you're going to go down to the park in front of the Capitol, and you're going to throw your coat over your shoulder and you're going to shake hands with people and reagan looked at the whole day and he said everything's good but that thing at noon and deaver said what's wrong with that and reagan said i never take my coat off and if i take my coat off people are going to read that it's a phony thing because i'm going to feel like it's a phony thing now he was an actor (laughs) but he was really really sensitive to what read as authentic and what didn't read as Mm -hmm. authentic which was one of the reasons he got to be president of the United States. It, well, it reminds me of, I have a friend who, who is an actor who I once asked, who's very politically active, and I asked him, I said, uh, do you ever think about running for office? And he said, I don't want to act that much. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you know, there's authenticity at the kernel of all of it, right? Now, you ran into some tough debaters, one of whom ended up becoming your wife. <laughs> That's right. It's the only argument I've ever won. It's like her. a sitcom. <laughs> it is. It's... Like a really nerdy sitcom. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about that. Yeah, so um, Diana uh, was uh, she was on a rival debate team, and um, and it legitimately is the only argument that I've truly out and out won between the two of us. And I remind her all the time that there was a neutral judge, and that that has not happened since. Uh, but <laughs> um, but yeah, so we uh, we met our, our senior year. We went to rival high schools, and um, she was an immigrant. Yeah, she Diana came over at the age of eight as a, as a refugee from the Soviet Union, from a refugee from anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. and um, and so yeah, for for a kid uh, like me, uh, you know, grew up. I mean, I didn't know a whole lot of Jewish folks who were not my cousins growing up where I grew up, and uh, and so the first Jewish girl I ever dated, you know, 
I was 17 and I was like, this is pretty good. I like her. So how, um, how important is, is Judaism? How how important is, is, is your faith to you? Uh, It's important. Um, you know, I, I, I don't want to sit here and pretend that I'm, you know, far more observant than I am, but, um, but it's an important part of who I am. I mean, I certainly, the idea of like tikkun olam, the idea of repair the world, Mm -hmm. heal the world, I think is, I, I don't think I realized until, um, I got older or until like, my wife and I did a, a trip to Israel and that kind of thing that I, I realized sort of how that really is kind of at the center of a lot of my thinking. I had a rabbi once who said, um, he, he told our congregation, he said, uh, we're not about making the world more Jewish. We're about, um, making the world with the world better. And I feel like that's a big part of who I am. You know, it's interesting to me because, um, you had, you you had political, success in Missouri. Do you think that, uh, and, and your governor's Jewish, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there, so this doesn't seem to be a barrier uh, to election in your state. Uh, yeah, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a funny story. Um, so I'm down in, uh, in what we call the boot heel of Missouri mm-hmm. once, you know, uh, southeast corner. And uh, very, I mean, it's the South. I mean, that, that's, it's basically. I, the, I've done races down there. Right. Yeah. And it's basically the Deep South. And it's a little north of the Deep South, but it's it. And and so you're down there and, I, well, anyway, I, I, I'm, I'm staying over at a friend's house during uh, my Secretary of State's race. And he, his father-in-law uh, was, was there and, and his father-in-law started to tell a joke. And it became pretty clear to me in the first 30 or so seconds that this was a Jewish joke. And I didn't expect that I was going to be offended, but I also didn't want him to feel uncomfortable. So I kind of interrupted him and I just said, hey, just so you know, I'm Jewish. said, hey, putz, no, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I went straight into Yiddish. <laughs> no, I just, I was just, just so you know, uh, I'm probably not going to be offended, but you should know. So he's like, uh, okay, whatever. So he he tells the, the joke and it was fine. And then uh, his... Uh, like my buddy was like, he is Jewish. He's like, yeah, right. And he's like, no, really he is. And so then it got a little awkward. So to kind of break <laughs> the ice, I said, you know, I'm going to church in Carothersville tomorrow morning. Cause you know, frequently on the campaign trail, you yeah. go with friends to church and meet people. I was like, I'm going to church in Carothersville tomorrow morning. Uh, people are going to ask me where I go to church in Kansas city. How do you think I had to answer that? Now I'd been down this road many times. I, I knew what I was going to do. I wasn't worried about it, but I wanted him to feel better. And he thought about that for a second. And he said, well, you know, as long as you're Christian. <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and then I was like, well, I'm not. And, and he, he goes, oh, and he goes, Jew is just another kind of Christian. And uh, anyway, but so, no, I always figured for it's folks the who... title of your memoir. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, I don't know how my... I don't know how my grandpa would feel about that, but, <laughs> but um, I just always figured that anybody who like anti-Semitism would play a role in how they evaluated me as a candidate, that was going to be their number 15 reason for not voting for me because they probably had 14 reasons ahead of that. And so, uh, you know, I had people say stuff, but I don't think it cost me many votes. You, uh, you went off to school at, uh, at Georgetown. Or you were a law student there. Mm-hmm. You went to American University mm-hmm. uh, undergrad, and uh, and then September 11th happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you know instantly that you were going to enlist? I knew pretty quick. So I um, I had always really thought about. I really admired the idea of serving, and I thought about like my grandfather, and my great grandfather 
had not been soldiers and then a war had happened and then they went and did their service and, 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 and then went back to their lives. And that was just sort of something that just always seemed really pragmatic to me. And it was, it just seemed like a patriotic natural act. So I was thinking I want to serve and, and I, I kept telling myself I would, and I don't know if I ever would have, I, I maybe I would have done the JAG Corps or something at some point, but I don't know if I would have. And then nine eleven happened. And I remember this refrain in my head, just ringing all day, which was, I have to do something. I just kept remember feeling I have to do something. And my, my roommates and I went down to give blood um, near the Capitol and we waited for a long time in line. And then they came out and said they, they couldn't take any more blood. And I remember right then I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to join. So if they wouldn't take your blood, they'd have to take you. <laughs> right. And, and it's funny. I, I, that day I went home and I, uh, I was talking to Diana on the phone as before we were married, but she was back in Kansas city and we were together. Uh, we were still, we weren't together. We were together. You know what I mean? And uh, it was a long-distance relationship is the word mm-hmm. I'm looking yes, for. Yes, yeah. I got it. You can edit that out and post that part where, <laughs> where <laughs> no. I can't figure out what a long-distance <laughs> relationship is. Anyway, so – and I say to her – I tell her that story. And, uh, you know, they came out. They couldn't take any more blood, so I think I'm going to go into the military. And she, the eminently practical person that she is, she said, maybe you could just go tomorrow and see if they could take more blood. <laughs> but <laughs> instead, I, I went on a, on a run and for the first time in years to – Try and get in shape. Yeah, you and you were injured right at the time. I actually I had decided I was going to go in, and then um, I was in a pickup football game, and it was my idea to play tackle, uh, which was really stupid in retrospect, and uh, and I tore my ACL, and so then I had to go through surgery and and physical therapy to be able to go into the army. And uh, you uh, you entered army intelligence. That's what mm-hmm. you were you and tell me about. Uh, how that evolved and your experience uh, in Afghanistan. Sure. Well, so a lot of folks were telling me, like recruiters were saying, you know, you're going to have a law degree by the time you get your commission. Why don't you just go JAG? And they also said you could skip all this training and stuff and just do that. And at the time, I just, it was nothing against JAGs. Um, I just felt like, I was just saying to myself, I don't feel like what the Army needs right now is me as a lawyer. You know, I just felt like I wanted to go in and do something else. And so, yeah, so I went to Army Intelligence School, and then I volunteered to deploy, and um, I went to Afghanistan and did um, anti-corruption, anti-espionage investigations. Basically, it was my job to figure out which bad guys were pretending to be good guys in the Afghan government, and as you know, there was it's plenty of It's a huge of issue yeah. uh, because I, there was a lot of duplicity and a lot of treachery, mm-hmm. and, and how did you go about that? Um, so when I got there, so the position was actually an analyst position, and when I got there... Um, they sort of said to me, well, look, you can, you got a choice here. You can, uh, you can fly a desk, so to speak, and you can work here and do analysis on the night shift. Uh, and they weren't judging me. They just said, here's your choice. They said, or you can do this role. And they said, we don't really have anybody collecting this information. So you'll be analyzing it, but we also need somebody to go out and collect it. I had a little training in how to do that. You get familiarization training in that when you go through the basic intelligence school, but like, I didn't have any of the advanced training that you get, but you know, one of the things you learn when you deploy is none of that matters. You just do what you got to do to get the job done. And that seemed to me like what needed to be done. It seemed more important. So, uh, I, you know, I spent about four days a week outside the wire, um, meeting with folks, uh, you know, taking meetings, learning about stuff, going back, writing it up with some shady characters and some dangerous places at times, often just me and my translator. Um, but it was an incredible experience. Let me ask you, based on your experience mm-hmm. there, as you as you watch from a distance what's happening now, where are we? Uh, because it seems as if um, 
there's a, there's a government that's making a good faith effort, but still uh, uh, there's been a backsliding mm-hmm. uh, and still the same problems of retaining a military uh, and, uh, and and that that can actually defend the civil civil institutions mm-hmm. there. The, there's two things first that I think about when I think about this. The first is is that if you were to go back and write the American story from the beginning, you would never write Afghanistan as the longest war in American history. And I think we all just have to acknowledge that, that, that you got to start from there. And, and the second thing uh, is one of the things I learned when I was over there. Now, I was over there 06, 07. So what that meant was is a lot of the folks, even the generals that were coming over because Iraq was dominating the news they were relating everything through Iraq. So they would talk about winning hearts and minds. They would talk about Sunni and Shia. Now, both of those things were actually not the pervasive issues in Afghanistan. The pervasive issues in Afghanistan were what you just mentioned, which was the center of gravity was the government of Afghanistan was demonstrating that at the time Karzai could be more than the mayor of Kabul, right? Because the people, first of all, the country, you know, between Sunni and Shia just wasn't, I mean, the population wasn't – there wasn't a divide down the middle mm-hmm. like in the other countries. And then the second was that the the people overwhelmingly wanted the coalition to succeed. Hearts and minds were not the issue. It was that people – there was an enormous consequence for backing the coalition and then finding – and then if they leave your town, right? I actually used to use the analogy when I would explain this to people of like imagine, you know, that – you know. Uh, that at the time Senator Clinton and Senator Obama were coming to your town in 08 and they were campaigning and you were deciding between the two of them. But the consequences were, you know, if you pick the wrong one, the other side might kill you and your family, right? Like that, that's the, that's the level at which, so it wasn't about winning hearts and minds. It was about convincing people that we could prevail, that we could be competent. We really being the government of Afghanistan. And I think we have to be realistic about the fact that um, I think a lot of what we went there to achieve in the first place or what we should have gone there to achieve in the first place has been achieved. Um, Bin Laden is no longer there. It has, for the most part, been um, denied as a safe haven. Now, that's changed here and there for al-Qaeda. The really dangerous stuff now when I look at it is you look at the fact that ISIS is as uh, prevalent Mm -hmm. there as it is. That's really frightening because, you know, there was al-Qaeda, there was Taliban, there was Hezbi Islami Google Dean network, there was that kind of thing, but there wasn't that. And so I think it's very clear that you're going to have to have a presence in the region. You're going to have to have a presence there. But what I see President Trump doing is doing what he always does, but in a way that is just, I'm just so offended by it. I'm offended by it whenever he does it, but especially here where what he's doing is he's dialing up the promises to the highest level he can while doing the absolute minimum of actual action, right? I mean, there was a point, as you well know, in, in what, 2010, 2011, where we had 100,000 troops there, mm-hmm. right? And he, and now he's going to add another four or 5,000 to what we have now and claim that that's going to get a better well, result do you think he that? should add more? You know, no. the, he was report, reported to want to get out completely, and his military advisors mm-hmm. uh, told him that that was not a viable solution, and so he grudgingly agreed to add these four or 5,000 troops, what, 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 let's say you were president of the United States, and we can talk mm-hmm. about this later. <laughs> uh, what would you do in this instance? Uh, how would you uh, configure America's presence? There? I'd be much more realistic about what we can achieve, right? So, look, no, I'm not saying he should have a ton of troops there. Um, what I am saying is that he needs to recognize that 
he's not going to get these things done that he claims he's going to get done. I think what he's doing is he's trying to buy time until he can come up with some very Trumpian way to declare victory and then just and then and then pull out, I guess. But what's really upsetting about it is like when we just talked about it, we said, you know, he's deciding he's giving in to sending these thousands more troops. What's really messed up is he's not even doing that. President Trump has delegated to the Pentagon the authority to decide how many troops go over, which I mean, that's what the commander in chief does. And this is so consistent with what he did when Ryan Owens was killed in Yemen. And he said the generals lost him when they dropped the biggest piece of ordinance uh, in, I think, Nangahar province, you know, the, the MOAB. It was the, the biggest bomb that we've dropped, yes. non-nuclear. And he's asked about it. And his immediate reaction, he literally made a noise like, uh, long yeah, noise. Right. And then said, well, everyone knew it. He's trying to avoid ever having to take blame when bad things happen and then take credit when good things happen. And in the last, I'll finish this thought is there's about 4,000 American soldiers who might be ordered by the Pentagon in this case to go to Afghanistan and they have the courage to go do it. They deserve a commander in chief with the courage to actually give that order in the first place. And, and so I think it's, that's a huge lack of leadership. Okay. So let me ask my question again. What should we be doing? <laughs> sure. So I, I think we should have the amount of troops that we need in the region in order to, to have the ability to do operations in the region when you can do counterterrorism. It's it's about what we have probably less uh, in order to say, okay, we need to be able to project force in this region. And we should at least try to continue to do some of the training mission, but we have to be realistic. This can't go on forever. Like it just cannot go on forever. And But we've been saying that for a long time. Yeah, but I but but I'm talking about dialing it back to where it is He's saying, let's go back into serious direct combat there. And I'm saying, let's scale back and recognize we've built a serious infrastructure there. That's important in the region. We should, we should utilize that. But we're not going – Afghanistan is not going to be a Jeffersonian democracy. Like, we need to recognize that sort of thing. And also uh, – But the, the question is not whether it's a Jeffersonian democracy, but mm-hmm. does it collapse and does the uh, Taliban come back? into power. And if they do, we would need to deal with that when it happens. But the question is not just does the Taliban come back, it's does the Taliban come back and how does that affect American interests? And do they then become a safe haven again? Mm-hmm. Then you deal with that situation. But, you know, the, just the Taliban coming back by itself is not enough to, to necessitate what he's doing. We'll take a short break and we'll be right back with Jason Kander. So, you uh, you came back and you uh, and you ran for state representative. Mm-hmm. Uh, was it always in your mind that you were going to run for public office from the time that you were the high school debater? Uh, I think around high, I didn't know what it meant, but I think sometime in high school I started. I, I knew that I was interested in politics, and uh, and then um, yeah, when I came home, I I was starting to think about running for uh, for office. When I came home. Uh, the first time, like from law school, before I went uh, off to intelligence school. You were what twenty seven when you when I was elected, yeah. And you were uh, you the the big issue that you fought for there were were reform issues, campaign finance mm-hmm. reform, and so mm-hmm. on. Why, why did you choose those? Uh, really, it was, again, born out of my experience overseas, right? Like I had done anti corruption investigations over there, and and then really like viewed it in a way. You know, I'd never really been in politics when I was over there. So I had sort of just my political science, which is that background where like I had read about it. And so when I would look at the corruption over there, I had the uh, I had the armor of kind of saying, well, 
this is back home. It's not like this. And of course, you know, it's not comparable. Like it's not dangerous in the same way. But, but once I got into it, I realized, wow, there, there's like more similarities than I'm comfortable with here. The influence of money, the, you know, the way all of that works. And that's, that's how I think I became really passionate about it. That and just the sense that like, I'm very much, I think, a systems person, like in the way that I really believe that like when you get, like I do the voting rights work now, I believe when you get, when you get the machinery right, you tend to get a better outcome out of that machinery, like a, a better policy outcome when the process is right. And so it's just something I care about a lot. How did that experience in the military uh, change you, shape you? Do you feel like you're a different person for having Absolutely. served? And how did it affect you as you moved into politics? Uh, it has everything to do with it. But it also has everything to do with the person I am as a dad and as a husband. Um, and I think a lot of it is it's just it gives me the ability to put things in perspective uh, in a way that maybe that I don't think I had prior to that, right? Which is to say that like, when I was running the first time, um, well, for one thing, uh, I just kind of physically outpaced my opponents. I knocked on twenty thousand doors. I, you know, because I had I had done hard work. I put my head down and finished a ruck march when I was in pain and, and all that kind of thing. But also, it was I just I'm not afraid to lose. I'm not I'm not afraid to be embarrassed. You know, in the same way maybe some other folks are because I don't know. I've just been through tougher stuff. Not being afraid to be embarrassed is, of course, a prerequisite for being a political candidate. <laughs> I think it, it's – as someone once said to me, they said, if you are willing to go out and be uh, and be humiliated in front of your friends and family, that makes you very dangerous to the status quo. <laughs> and I believe that. Uh, you, uh, you didn't stay in the legislature for long. Yeah, a couple of terms. Yeah. You ran for secretary of state. What mm-hmm. prompted you to mm-hmm. – you were you you had had you gained everything you thought you could from uh, being in the Missouri legislature. Oh, I fixed everything. It was, uh-huh. it was like, well, this is done. No, um, the Secretary of State's office uh, is one where, again, going back to like I believe in the machine. Machine's the wrong word when you're talking about politics, but the system should be a just one. And I saw the Republicans looking at the Secretary of State's office, which was in charge of elections, and I saw them having their their eye on voter suppression policies. And I was not okay with that idea. And and I felt that I could run and win that race. And and I I thought it was really important to have somebody who was an advocate for voting rights in the office. And so. And what did you do to advance voting rights in the office? A few things. One, we actually made Missouri uh, the 16th state to put the voter registration form online. Um, we didn't get early voting to where we wanted it to be, but we advanced the conversation a lot. We actually got a, a, a Republican member who was the vice chair of the elections committee to propose a bill. We, um, you know, just took a customer service approach to it. Um, we did things with the initiative petition process to open it up, uh, to make sure people felt heard in that process. We took a really nonpartisan down the middle approach to that process so that folks knew that we weren't trying to get the answer to that question we wanted. We were just posing it to voters, which is a big deal in Missouri. So, uh, so we did a lot in that regard. You know, uh, not to brag, but Illinois just, uh, uh, just implemented uh, automatic mm-hmm. registration. You should brag. It's good. I've, um, I was, uh, okay. I was bragging. Yeah. Actually. I was doing a little bit of, like, I wrote an op-ed about it, you know, here and I, and I, uh, I don't think I'm the one who made it happen, but I, I've, I've been tracking it for a while and I'm excited to see it. So you got into a few tussles with your fellow secretary of state from the neighboring state, mm-hmm. uh, Chris Kobach, who's heading now, uh, the president's, uh, commission to, yeah. fi- to find these three to five million, mm-hmm. uh, 
voters who voted illegally yeah. who nobody knows. The Voter Suppression Committee to Reelect the President. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so uh, tell me about Kobach and your concerns and what and your uh, back and forth with him. He's kind of a, you know, he's a hero on the on the right. He's led the anti-immigrant movement mm-hmm. uh, from his perch in Kansas, mm-hmm. and now he's doing this. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, where do you see this all going? Well, the commission itself it has two possible conclusions that they'll reach. The first, and this will all be bogus and a complete fraud, but the, and this is the whole purpose of it, right? Well, actually, the original purpose was to justify the biggest lie that a sitting president's ever told, the one you, you referenced. The, and then it's morphed into they're going to either come up with a bunch of, you know, the, a bunch of theatrics, a bunch of theater to say that there's either uh, an epidemic of voter fraud in the country, there's not, um, or that there's the uh, possibility of an epidemic of voter fraud in the country. And they're going to use that to try and pass more laws to make the whole country have laws that look more like those in Wisconsin, for instance, because that's the centerpiece of the president's reelection strategy, make it harder for folks to vote. Um, and I think that's pretty gross. And my experience with Secretary Kobach is that, I mean, this is a guy who, when I first met him, it was right after I was elected Secretary of State. He came to the National Association of Secretaries of State Conference. And at the time, the administration, the Obama administration, was making the argument, you know, for, as you know, for uh, more convenience at the polls, that kind of thing, some some federal legislation. And he came in wanting all of us to sign on to a letter that would be a bipartisan letter of Secretaries of State saying the federal government has no role whatsoever in elections. And now that you've got a Republican president, he's head of this commission to say the federal government should tell you exactly how to do it. So you find this inconsistent. I find it somewhat inconsistent. Yeah. Um, That would be a shorter version of all that stuff I said. So you stayed in that office for one term, Mm -hmm. got everything you could out of the secretary of state's (laughs) office, all the knowledge and experience that one could, uh, and decided to run for the Senate, Mm -hmm. uh, in 2016, uh, and ran a race that, was much stronger than anybody anticipated. You became sort of the fair-haired boy of of 2016. You lost by three points. 2.8, but, you know. But who's counting? (laughs) And what did uh, Donald Trump win the state by? 19. So there's probably no greater gap, Mm -hmm. uh, certainly among challengers. What did you learn from that experience running for the Senate? It confirmed for me the importance of just making your argument. It confirmed for me that voters will forgive you for believing something they don't believe as long as they know you really believe it. And I think the really important part of that is that it's that and, and that and is, and you believe it because you care about them. It can't be, this is what I believe, it's what I truly believe because these people over here are my people. It's got to be, this is what I believe, I truly believe it, and here's how it's going to make a difference in your life. And I think that 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 is one of the things that accounts for the gap. So let me ask you, there, you talk on this issue of taking positions that you believe. You took a few positions in the campaign that got uh, noticed. You supported a balanced budget mm-hmm. amendment to the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Um, explain that and how that would work. That's probably the thing I'm most wrong about when I look back at it, right? Like, I think uh, naively, I I looked at it as, okay, if we, if, if we do this, then we can force the amount of uh, you know, revenue increases on folks who are at the top end. And then as a result, we'll pay for these things that are really important. And looking back, I think that's naive. I think I was just wrong. Um, I look back at it now and uh, I just think I was wrong about it. 
You know, I look at this Congress, they would never do that. And uh, you and and I understand from a local standpoint, but you oppose the uh, clean water rule that was proposed by the EPA uh, under Obama. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that was from talking to farmers in the state. You know, um, they were really concerned about it. They were able to take me to creeks and show me, you know, how it would affect them. So, yeah, in my state, that was something that I I thought was the right position. I, I thought that was best representing the Phil state. Phil Sal, I mean, this is an interesting mm-hmm. question mm-hmm. because every state is different and you're elected to represent sure. your state. So the old Edmund Burke or whoever question, right? The old Phil, maybe I'm getting the guy wrong, but that old philosophical <laughs> treatise. I didn't mean to cut you off. Finish your question. That's okay. Yeah, <laughs> now I forgot what my No, no. My question is this. Um, how much leeway should people get mm-hmm. to represent their states? Mm-hmm. Uh because you hear this all the time, there ought to be there ought to be standards. Progressives mm-hmm. ought to be progressive. It's mm-hmm. not progressive to oppose a clean water rule. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much leeway do people get to represent the sort of interests of their state? So I think the leeway has to all exist within what you authentically believe, right? Like in that case, I authentically believe this is the best thing for my state. Same deal with. Uh, uh, with uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership. Like, I just looked at it and felt like for the way the auto industry was coming back in my state, um, that didn't seem like the best thing for my state. But I authentically believe that. So I don't think... What do you believe about it for the country as a whole? I think it's... it's, it's I mean, it's a I, dead issue right now yeah. because the president has... For the country Trump. as a whole, I think it probably wasn't the best thing, but I recognize that... Uh, I don't feel that I had the expertise to completely reach that conclusion, right, for the country as a whole. But I knew looking at my state, I was, I was like, for my state, I know this is, this is the wrong thing. And, and I just think since that's authentically what I believed, it's fine to step, it, you know, that's what's important as long as it's really what you believe. But, uh, you know, on the other hand, like going back to the environmental issue, I also had all sorts of folks in my state saying, you know, uh, from an economic perspective, um, when the president, when President Obama was proposing the clean power plan, everybody was saying, I don't know that Missouri's a winner in this, so you shouldn't be for it. And I was saying, yeah, but Missouri is on the planet and we do need to do something about what happens to the planet. So, you know, that was one where people were saying, well, this may not be wise politically, but I knew that's really where I was and that's what I needed to go with. Now you've started an organization, mm-hmm. uh, let America vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the purpose of this organization? So Let America Vote, it, our mission is to create political consequences for uh, politicians who, who push voter suppression. You know, for the longest time, the way it's worked is uh, when somebody tries to take away voting rights, there's a big legal fight. Fortunately, more often than not, the folks on the side of voting rights have prevailed. But I really felt like coming out of the election, when you've got uh, President Trump pushing this big lie. You've got Jeff Sessions literally switching sides in the court cases. And then you've got um, President Trump appointing the judges. The argument had to expand beyond the court of law and into the court of public opinion. So that's what we're doing. We're running campaigns against folks who um, who are making it harder to vote. Like If you're making it harder to vote, we want to make it harder for you to get reelected. And I notice you've opened up some offices. Uh, one of them's in Ohio. I mean, I'm sorry, one of them's in Iowa. Another's in New Hampshire. Another's in Nevada. I'm familiar with these states also because Georgia, I spent a lot of time uh, in these states uh, with people who wanted to run for president of the United States. Uh, what is it about these particular states that you thought were uh, particularly important and uh, what marked them as the sort of ground zero for this campaign that you are running well actually if you look at each one they're sort of hotbeds for the issue right now particularly if you look at iowa and new hampshire right so new hampshire just passed uh, senate bill three which is 
really sort of a devious and grossly creative approach to voter suppression. It's about uh, going out and, and trying to intimidate college students out of voting. Um, this is why Chris Kobach just went there and, and just made up the idea that thousands of college students there were criminals because, um, you know, these are people who pay tuition, pay rent, uh, and live there most of the time. And they're saying they shouldn't be allowed to vote there. And so they've done that to try and I mean, they're, they're talking about sending people from the government by their door after the election to question them about how long um, they've actually intend to live there, which we've not seen before. So that's a big part of it. And then you go to Iowa. Iowa is the only state where a secretary of state actually himself proposed a photo ID bill that then became law. And it's a secretary of state, uh, Pate, there who, you know, he won by, I think, about 20,000 votes. And there's there's well over 20,000 voters that he's seeking to disenfranchise. I was actually there in 2014 campaigning uh, against him, campaigning for the Democratic candidate for Secretary of State. And then in Nevada, you have a governor who vetoed automatic voter registration. It's likely going to the ballot. You also have this recall effort that they're doing in order to try to just undo the election that allowed them to, the Democrats to take the state Senate. So there's all sorts of voting rights issues in each of the states, actually. But... The convenient coincidence of all of this is those also are states that play big in a presidential race. And I'm not going to be uh, coy about this. You, you, your name has been mentioned in connection with uh, a presidential race. I would say, gee, that seems precipitous for a guy whose number one position has been uh, Secretary of State top position in public life, Secretary of State of Missouri. But then I look at your career, and you've never been daunted by <laughs> those kinds of objections. How seriously are you thinking about this? You know, it's it's really flattering, obviously, that people talk about it. Um, well, they talk about it because you spend a lot of time in <laughs> Iowa, in New Hampshire. That tends to get ta tongues wagging, you know? Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really focused on making sure we still hold elections right now. Um, but, you know, it's, if I'm successful, it's possible that I'll be in one uh, again. But, um, you know, you never say never. But I, I really think the focus right now has to be 2018. What, 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 would, uh, what would attract that you to that? What would draw you to that? And what do you think you would bring to something like that, given the obvious question about the lack of, of uh, governmental experience at a, at a sort of national level? Well, just to speak generally about running for office, right? I mean, anytime I've ever run for office, it has been because, for me, it's been because there's been some change I wanted to see, and there happened to be an office between me and that change. You know, state representative, there were Medicaid cuts in, in my state that bothered me a lot. I ran. It was one of the things I wanted to do something about. I, I could go through the list, but, mm -hmm. but you know. Well, there's plenty that you probably want to see change right now. Sure. Uh, so at the national level. Yeah, and, and right now – that's why I'm doing Let America Vote, because right now I see that is the greatest threat is, is Donald Trump's ability to make it harder to vote. Why did Donald Trump win and why did he carry your state by 19 points? Well, so I've sometimes explained this as it's sort of like a closing argument where, at, you know, that election where at the end of that closing argument, you know exactly why you're supposed to give a verdict to one because it was, ex you know, it was very clearly expressed. And then the other person made, you know, in front of the whole jury, several very customized arguments, but in front of the whole jury. And, and I think, I think that's part of it. Um, I also think, you know, somebody said, I don't remember who, but somebody said that Donald Trump was, I think they said the wrong answer to the right question. And that really rings true with me. You know, I think that, um, folks, and I felt this part, I felt in 2016, uh, that, 
people look at the gridlock in our national conversation and they are frustrated and it's not just gridlock in congress it's sort of our inability to to speak to each other and not just like on cable news or not just in washington but just sort of a feeling that we've all lost the ability to talk to each other and so i think what people were looking for was somebody who would just break up that gridlock and i think a lot of that gridlock in the conversation and a lot of people like you often say say whatever you want about him nobody ever said he doesn't speak his mind right donald trump right and and i think so there were i met plenty of people who put that as a number one priority but the other thing and this is, I think, the number one thing. I met a lot of, I got 220,000 votes from people who voted for Trump. And a lot of them, what these people would say to me is they would say, look, I don't like him. I don't like the You way also he- run against a quintessential Washington I insider. Was. Mm-hmm. I was. And, and people would say to me, they'd say, look, I don't like the way uh, he treats people. Uh, I don't like him. And they'd say, but it's made him very successful. Now, you and I might disagree with what he claims is his level of success, but that was the narrative, right? They would say, but it's made him very successful. And if he's willing to do that uh, for the country, uh, do, do that for me, well, I'm willing to give that a try. So I just met a lot of people who weren't like, this is the guy, but they yeah. were like, I'm willing to give that a try. I also think the biggest thing is that uh, Senator Blunt was a big Washington mm-hmm. insider, and a lot of the people who were casting votes were voting against the status quo. Sure. Hillary Clinton, they viewed as an avatar of that status quo. You were not, and that, that was right. advantageous. On this notion of getting together, and maybe mm-hmm. the best place for us to end, mm-hmm. is the implication of this whole generation of Afghanistan and Iraq veterans who are entering politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that holds out some promise for greater comedy and ability to compromise and come together to solve problems? Mm-hmm. Uh, or are you just going to see your governor, for example, is a, is a veteran, uh, mm-hmm. and yet there's a big gulf probably between you and him on issues? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think just in general, I absolutely think it holds a lot of promise. Um, I've... You know, you look back at the guys who served together, Dole and Inoue and all those folks and the way that they um, they were able to put stuff aside. I, and I think that actually gets at one of the one of the things that we have to address as a country. Um, and that is shared experience, common shared experience matters, whether it's in the service. I think in the service is a really important one because it's a pretty serious experience that you, it's easy to bond around. But just shared experience. I mean, we're living in a country right now where – it's really easy for folks to sort of compartmentalize themselves and, and only spend time with people who grew up the way they grew up or who are living the way they're living. And I'm not saying people do that on purpose. It's just it's, it's more and more it's happening naturally. It's in our media. It's in where people live. It's in everything. And so I think any time you have folks who have that common background and that common experience, but also there is something special about the military uh, in this regard because it is – that ability to understand that the mission comes first and that you have a common mission and that mission is bigger than your differences. And, and I, I do think that's why uh, it makes a difference. But I also am really honestly pretty optimistic about the millennial generation. I, I think that the, all the criticism that says, you know, this generation is entitled or selfish and all that stuff. I just served with a whole bunch of millennials who signed up after nine 11, knowing, knowing what that was going to be. And, and I also think that this thing where people want their millennials, want 
the person who signs their paycheck or the entity who signs their paycheck to match up with their personal identity of who they are, I don't think that's selfish. I actually think that that's a form of patriotism, that they, they want to make the country or their community a better place, including between nine and five. I think well, that's I want to thank you for spending uh, time with young people at the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and with me today. Thanks. And uh, I look forward to seeing how your efforts to clean up the process in Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada go, and we'll follow, we'll follow up on that later. Jason Kander, thanks so much. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.